Welcome to those of you here. This is really fantastic to see your faces. Welcome to everyone online as well. So glad that you're joining us. We are a church, and what a church is, is it's more than a building. It's a gathering of God's people, and Ryan talked about that last week, the Ecclesia, and this gathering is this morning happening both in person for a limited number of us and then online for a larger, but we are still one gathering. And so even when you're uh, participating online, maybe this morning or, or perhaps next week where we will all be online, I really encourage you to participate at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And the reason for that is there's something happening knowing that others are gathered as well in the name of Jesus from your ecclesia, your group of a local church. And so that's just a, a recommendation. I think um, it feels kind of like we could watch at any time, but there is something about watching right at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings that, that's special. It's a special thing. So thanks for being here, being a part of this with us. Drop my notes, pick those up. Great. Okay. Let me just start as well with a prayer just to settle our hearts and minds. Normally we have that four-minute conversation. Uh, normally I have that four-minute conversation. So let, let's just pray and ask God to be with us. Heavenly Father, we are here because of you, because of what you've done for us. We are responding to your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. And what we have to give you is our praise, our allegiance, uh, our hands, our feet. We give them back to you. You gave them all, you gave us all, and we give back to you now because we know it is all yours. The victory is yours. This world is yours. Our hearts are yours, God. And so let this morning be an exclamation of that point that you are all in all, you are the King of King, the Lord of Lords, the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, the A to the Z. You are everything, and so we acknowledge that now, and we ask you to speak to us, to, to align our hearts and our minds to the reality which is most true, and that is you and your grace shown through your son, Jesus Christ. So we come, God, and we ask you to fill us with knowledge and wisdom, to fill us with hope and peace, to fill us with your spirit. Pour it out on us now. Come, Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And as Ryan taught us last week, if you're in agreement with that prayer, all God's people say... Amen. All right. So when I say it, it's uh, kind of to tip you off. I'm done talking. And then you guys get to say amen if you're in agreement. Now, if you disagree, feel free to keep that amen to yourself. But you could actually do that while I'm preaching. You could say amen if I say something that you think particularly true. Now, as we know, I say a lot of very true things. So you don't have to say it after every sentence. Amen. amen. Okay. But after some, you could. So, okay. Well, here, here we go. I would like to start today by talking about, um, kind of, it, it, this isn't an intro so much as it is a public service announcement regarding politics. 
and the wind went out of the room. But here's the deal. I feel like um, it's important for us to acknowledge some of the realities that are happening right now. And, and so I, just, I have four things I'd like to say with regard to your vote. And I'm not going to tell you how to vote. We have a diverse church, people with different political opinions. People will vote differently. Uh, but I want, I want to say, I feel like there's a few messages floating around um, these days that are untrue. And so I feel like that's, that's part of my job. My job is not to be a political pundit. It's not to tell you how to vote on any particular national, regional, local uh, policy or person. But I do, it is my job to call out uh, untruths that I think take root in our hearts. And so I, I feel like there's a couple of untruths that are taking root in our country and probably within our city and definitely probably within our church. And I, I just want to talk about them very quickly. And then I'll get into my sermon from the Word of God because ultimately that's where we find correction. So the first thing I'd like to say is that um, you are more than your vote. I feel like there's a message floating around that the, the main thing you have to give this country, this city, this democracy is your vote. And your vote is very important, and I encourage everyone to vote. But you're so much more than your vote. I don't know if you felt like that. I feel like the messaging about July on has shifted to um, you are your vote. But your vote is not who you are. It doesn't define you. It doesn't give you your value. It's not the only thing that you can do to help our society or this democracy, though it's important. But you're so much more than that. Now, if you believe the lie that you are your vote and that's the only thing you can do, two things will happen. The first thing that will happen is you will believe that once you've cast your vote, your work is done. And this will make you apathetic. You will think, well, I've done the one thing that I can do to help, and so I'm kind of take a hands-off approach here from, from here on out. That is not the way you should live your life. You should cast your vote, and then you should work, no matter if the results of any particular election align with your vote, you should work hard, because love works hard, to then put into practice the principles that led you to vote in the way that you did. So don't become apathetic and just say, well, I did my part, I voted. That's not enough. The other thing that I think happens when you believe that you're just your vote is you don't take responsibility for the way things turn out. I remember Allie and I were on vacation in California, and we were sitting in a coffee shop, and um, there was kind of one of these big kind of common tables. This was before coronavirus. And so we were sharing a table, and um, this woman was on the phone with her son, and then her husband walked in, and they sat and they talked in front of us for about 15 minutes. And there was so much vulgar talk that came out of her mouth. She was talking about the resort she was staying at. It's a very fancy resort, and how it wasn't up to her standard, and how uh, the housekeeping wasn't doing their job. And she was saying some very derogatory things about the workers at this resort. And then she started talking to us, and she, then she was saying, these, I mean, just 
I thought I was on candid camera because I was looking around. This can't be, I've never heard anybody talk publicly like this. It was very, she was very loud. And then she was talking to us very freely. And then all of a sudden she stopped, realizing that the words coming out of her mouth were very acidic. And she said, she looked right at uh, Allie and I and she said, listen, don't worry. For the last four decades I voted for, and then she said her political party. I care about people. Her point being, because of the way she voted, that is how, that revealed the way she loved. That is just not true. The way you reveal your love is by how you live and speak and interact with people, not only by how you vote. So don't believe that lie. Jesus didn't say, uh, they will know that you are my people by the way that you vote. He said, you will know that they're my people by the way that you love. Never forget that. You're so much more than your vote. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. There are, there, there's no such thing as good guys and bad guys. So don't demonize people from the other political party. Here's what I mean. I, I hear this all the time, that there's this there's this narrative, this meta-narrative, that there's the good people of the world and there's the bad people of the world and politics is the way that we, we keep the bad people from getting what they want the world. Here's the Bible's story or narrative. No, not one is righteous. Not one. All of us are bad guys. And there is one good God. And that good God had to send his son to die on the cross for our sin to keep us from creating the world and, in our image and turning it into destruction. That's the narrative that Christians believe. There is not the good guys and the bad guys. We are all falling short of the glory of God. And if you forget that, you will fall into this polemic. You will fall into this us versus them mentality. Listen, there are so many important considerations when it comes to voting. There is a, a kind of political calculation that people are doing, and not everyone does that calculation exactly the same. There's so many factors, so many things that we have to understand um, whether this is your parents or this is your neighbors or this is friends within the church, do not demonize the other person. And here's partially why, particularly when you're talking with other Christians. We'll talk about this today. You will spend eternity with them. Don't do something or say something now <laughs> that will make it very awkward forever and ever, okay? <laughs> See what I'm saying? Listen, this is complicated Different people create different hierarchies of, of the person, the policy, the platform, the party. All of this is working together, and you are more than your vote, and your neighbor is more than your vote, and your family member is more than their vote. So don't demonize one another. No, not one is righteous, not one. Your moral worth as a human being does not hang on the balance of how you vote. So if you feel a terror that says, my moral balance hangs in question, 
you're probably thinking about your vote wrong. Because your vote doesn't hang, or your moral value doesn't hang on your vote, it hangs on Calvary's cross, where Jesus Christ died and bled and absorbed the wrath of God for your sin. That's where your moral value hangs. God is the one who says, you are valuable. And he says it, and he proves it because he died for you. Number three, you don't get to usher in the end of the world. I hate to break this to you. Both parties are saying, if the other party wins, it will be the end of the world. You hearing this? This, I feel like I'm hearing it. It's going to be the end of the world. Both sides are saying it. I try, to, I try to read and listen and watch from both sides so I can understand. They're all saying the same thing for different reasons, but it's the end of the world. Guess what? Only Jesus and only God gets to decide when the end comes. Not you, not me, not any political party, not America. We are not the center of the universe. God is. And so both sides are using fear tactics to try to get your vote. Just understand that that's happening. Now, if immediately in your head you go to the other party and you say, yeah, they are, they're using it, guess what? You're falling into that because both sides are doing it. I might be the only one listening to both sides. (laughs) I hope some of you are listening. They're using the exact same. It's fear tactics on both sides because it's a powerful way to get out the vote. But only Jesus gets to decide when the end comes because Jesus is so much bigger than the White House, so much bigger than any political party, so much bigger than America. Get that, get that truth so lodged in you that you can breathe again and feel peace because the end of the world is not going to come, in my opinion, in the next four years, unless Jesus decides now's the time. And then fourth, pray. Pray. Ask yourself a hard question. Have you prayed yet for this election? Have you prayed? And if you have not prayed, you're doing something wrong. I have to admit, I haven't prayed as much as I should. I've watched a lot of things. I've read a lot of things. I've talked a lot. But how often have I prayed? So you could be in the middle of an intense conversation with a brother and sister in Christ And all of a sudden, Sedaris principle, I believe it's number 13, maybe number 12, kicks into your mind. All of our principles are on our website. And that principle is, let's pray now. You could be in the midst of deep debate, and all of a sudden, the Spirit of God, by His grace, prompts you, let's pray now. We're not even praying about this. Praying for God's peace, for God's wisdom, uh, for God's providence to rule. For, for God in his might uh, to transform the hearts and minds of leaders, both now and whoever will be the next leaders. Have you prayed? That's where Christians need to begin. That is the beginning of wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord, not the fear of any political party. And you begin to live out your fear of the Lord by praying and asking for him to transform your heart, for him to guide your vote, for him to give you the wisdom 
to vote your conscience based on what you believe will lead this country and this city and, and whatever voting district that you're in towards human flourishing, not just for yourself, but for all of the citizens of this land. And then let it lay and trust God. So those are my four encouragements as we enter into this historic vote in just three days. Pray. You're more than your vote. The end of the world is not coming. And don't demonize. Don't demonize. So with that in mind, I'm going to pivot now to what I want to talk about today because we're in the middle of a series that was very much inspired by the times that we live in, where we are tearing apart, where we are dividing more than ever, where we are very freely demonizing and speaking ill words against those that we disagree with. And we've said, you know what, as the people of God, we need to learn how to build up, not tear down. That is what scripture tells us to do. And so we've been going through this series, we've talked about a number of things. And the last thing or not the, we're going to have a few more, but the next thing I wanted to talk about, and it, and it relates here, is speaking about heaven. Heaven talk. I was reminded this week of how important it is to allow your mind and your words to speak about the eternal realities. To speak about what the Bible calls heaven. Um, now, if you haven't been with us, let me just say, been with us for some time. Uh, maybe it was like a, a two years ago. We did a whole series on heaven, and and one of the things we need to to understand is that heaven is much more than just this spiritual ethereal place in the in the sky where we all float around on clouds. That's not how the Bible talks about heaven. Heaven is a very real, tangible, physical reality. Um, it exists now in this other realm. That's where God and Jesus are. But one day it will come and invade all of creation and remake it as God intends. And it's very physical. It's very tangible. And so I think sometimes we don't like to talk about heaven because it just feels like this strange um, spiritual, ethereal place. But that's not how Scripture talks about it. And we'll get to look at a couple of the things that Scripture says about heaven. And I'm proposing that we need to, if we want to build up, talk more about heaven because I feel like there has been um, a pendulum swing in, in our generation. I say our generation, meaning the vast majority of those who go to Sedaris um, are in a particular demographic. Um, so when I say our, I'm talking about my particular age. But it's in a response to what we think is maybe an overemphasis on heaven from pre, uh, previous generations, meaning it felt like people were not concerned about what was happening here and now because they're always talking about heaven and, and you know, salvation in Jesus was like fire insurance. And so we've swung the other way and we talk a lot about how do we bring heaven to earth right now, which is actually very, very important. But what I feel like has happened is that we've maybe swung too far and we've forgotten that heaven is something very important for Christians to talk about. And the main reason that I think it's important for Christians to talk about is because Jesus talked about it a lot. Jesus, uh, one scholar did some research on all the things that Jesus said, all the accounts in the Gospels. The Gospels are 
uh, four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which look at the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus and tell the story of Jesus' life. And so there's quotes from Jesus in those Gospels. And one scholar uh, found there's about 1,900 verses in the Gospels uh, where Jesus himself is speaking. And based on his analysis, about 192 of those, in, in those, Jesus was referencing heaven. Now, he could have been referencing, use the actual word heaven, or he's talking about eternal life, or he's talking about his coming kingdom, all which refer to this a bigger idea of heaven, or the world and life to come. Again, which includes both what we'd call intermediate heaven and um, definite future heaven where, where the new heavens and the new earth come and invade our present reality. So if you do the math, it, you don't have to be a mathematician to figure this out. 1,900 verses, 192 of them talk about heaven. That's 10%. So 10% of the words recorded for us that Jesus said, he was talking about this coming future reality that wasn't here yet. So he talked about heaven quite a bit. Um, In fact, in the book of Matthew, which is one of the four Gospels, uh, 70 times he references heaven in just that one Gospel alone. So Jesus talked a lot about it. The question is, do we talk a lot about it? If Jesus thought this was important for building up, do we think it's important for building up? 54 out of the 66 books of the Bible, that's the Old and New Testament combined, speak about this future, eternal, heavenly reality. And here's what I want to do. I want to just read some of these to you. These aren't going to be on your screen if you're at home. I just want you to, if you're here, just listen to me read these, okay? It's quite a long list. And I thought, man, this is going to be boring for people. And I said, this is the problem. The word of God should never bore you. Speaking about heaven should never bore you. But somehow we think we know everything about it. We should be reading these passages. So I'm just going to assume that you're like me and most Christians, and you probably haven't read a lot of these passages recently. And I hope it builds you up. It restores your soul. It's like a healing balm as you think about this coming election and all of its implications and where the country might go and what might come next, to step out by the grace of God because he's recorded these things for us and see the forest from the trees. Let it be a healing balm for you. So listen. Don't tune out right now. Listen to the word of God. This is what God has said to you regarding this heavenly, eternal reality. John 14 says this. These are Jesus' words. This is your king speaking. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is your savior, Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. John, the Apostle John, 
writes this in chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Luke 23, Jesus again said, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is as he hung on the cross and the thief next to him came to faith. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and thief destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy or where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now what exactly does make it through? I don't know exactly. I know one thing for sure. People make it through. Relationships. Don't kill a relationship now to win a political argument. 2 Peter 2, 3, the great apostle Peter says this, but according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. John 3, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man, that is Jesus. Where did Jesus come from? Heaven. Where did he go after his resurrection? Back to heaven. Luke 12, Jesus says this, to a, to a young man, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourself, or provide yourselves with money that bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroy, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Very similar to what he said in the Gospel of Matthew. First Timothy, Paul writes this, chapter 6, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. So if you're rich, don't be haughty. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What is he talking about now? No, in heaven. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. What is he talking about? He's not talking about your retirement. He's talking about your eternal retirement. Storing up a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, which is life with God. Hebrews 13. For here we have no lasting city. You could say no lasting state, no lasting nation, but we seek the city that is to come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Matthew 18, Jesus says this, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, speaking of children. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Think Jesus believed in heaven? Well, he came from there. Philippians 3, 
The Apostle Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, oh yes, mine is lowly, to be, with, to be like his glorious body, speaking about his resurrected body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's something to look forward to. Hebrews 11. Abraham, speaking about Old Testament Saint Abraham, was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations. So even Abraham knew about this eternal city, a city designed and built by God. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had uh, longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. First Peter chapter 1. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that you have been born again, because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live, because of that resurrection, with great expectation, and we have... Um, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Luke 12. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure that is in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you notice this story is told in several of the Gospels? <laughs> you think it's important that all the Gospel writers, inspired by the Spirit, Penned that same message from Jesus. Matthew 25, Jesus predicts his own coming. He says, When the Son of Man comes again in glory and all of his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep and the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Man, I've got a whole list here. The Old Testament, Isaiah 65, talks about, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or even come to mind. Lamentations, chapter 3, also in the Old Testament. Let us lift up our hearts and minds to God in heaven. I could go on and on. What shall I end with? There's so many. Look at all these. There's more to come. <laughs> okay. Let me just... Uh... Oh, yes. So good. You know what? Let me just read this to finish. Acts chapter 1. Acts is the book recounting the beginning of the Jesus movement after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. In Acts chapter 1, an angel says this to the disciples after seeing Jesus go up into the heavens and disappear <laughs> and the angel said this men of Galilee 
women of Galilee, men and women of America, of Seattle, Washington, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus will be coming back, and no eye will miss it. That's what the scriptures tell us. And he will come and establish his eternal kingdom. I've got to stop there. I, I wanted to read them all, but as you start reading it, you realize it takes a while. Are you blessed? Are you reminded, oh my goodness, God has told us over and over and over again to set our minds on the things above, not on just the things here. And so we must do that if we are to build one another up. If Jesus used it to build up his disciples, we must use heavenly talk to build up one another. We must. It's everywhere. You cannot get away from it. And as you, as you read more and more of Scripture and you start to see the world through the lens of Scripture and you start to remember that Jesus was, an Ameri- was not an American, that Jesus was Jewish, he was living in the land of Israel, and you start to have a, a, a bigger view of the world, what you realize is Jesus is so much bigger than the presidency. To even put those things in the same sentence feels to me like blasphemy. I wondered if I should even put those in the same sentence. But in a society that's devoid of God and is moving the worship of God to the uh, extremities, out of the center, what's happening is that something must fill the void. And that thing, I think, in America is politics. Politics is becoming the new religion. And so we must just remind ourselves that Jesus is so much bigger than the presidency. Heaven is so much bigger than America, than the world even. If you were around when we, when we went through the book of Colossians, you could go back and you can listen to this book. Uh, we had just this, this um, image that we used, and it was just of a giant circle. And inside that circle was a small circle. And what we said is, the bigger circle is heaven. We tend to think like they're separate. Heaven's over here and earth's over here. No, heaven's here and the universe is just this small thing that God's working on. He's trying to remove the cancer from it through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus that he sent into it to try to heal it. But, but, it, but it's not equivalent. Heaven is so much bigger than the world, and therefore so much bigger than America. Now, I do think Jesus cares about an election. He cares about all the elections across the world. But it does not worry him. He's not worried. He's not just waiting to see what happens. He cares, but he doesn't worry. So I want to turn now to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the last book in everyone's Bible, <laughs> okay? It's the last book written by the apostles, and it's a vision. God has given the apostle John, who, who when he's writing this, I think is the only apostle still alive. All the others have died all through martyrdom. They've been killed for their faith. And the apostle John is actually in prison on an island called Patmos in the Aegean Sea. 
And he writes this to seven churches. He writes this book of Revelation, and he talks about how God has given him a revelation through an angel of the things that are to come. And I think um, if if you've grown up in church or you've read Revelation, it can be quite confusing. It's apocalyptic literature, and so there's lots of symbols, and it's hard to know exactly uh, what what all, all these things represent. Many people have tried to understand it. And um, there's, there's some things that we can know, some general themes, but exactly how it will play out, we do not know. Um, but I think the thing that we often forget about the book of Revelation is that it's pastoral. That John is writing it to these seven churches that are all struggling with different things in order to encourage them and build them up so that they might continue to do the work of Jesus in the world. And so... Um, I just want to show you that because the book of Revelation is all about the future and the things to come and Jesus coming again and setting up the new heavens and the new earth. It's all about heaven, and yet it's totally pastoral for the present moment. So let me just read you at the very beginning of Revelation. I think we'll have this up on the screen. So this is chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, says this. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is the report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see how he's equivocating this word with the words of Jesus. Then he says this, verse 3, God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm writing this to you to bless you, to build you up, to encourage you, not so that you can get into some strange speculation or try to predict the events or whatnot. He's saying this is meant to be an encouragement talking about heaven and the things to come are a way to build up one another and the church. Now, let me just read you uh, the first part of Revelation is little messages to these seven churches. So let me just read you John's message to the church in Smyrna. Okay? Here it is. This is in chapter 2, verse 6. Excuse me. The lighting is terrible up here, by the way. Uh, Verse 8. I'm so used to preaching outside, you know? I can see everything. Okay. Uh, So this is uh, one of the many messages to the church in Smyrna. So this whole letter would have been sent out to the seven churches. It would have been passed around. And so there's little individual messages. Here's what John writes. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last. That's Jesus. Who was dead, but is now alive. Again, the centrality of the resurrection. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not, because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you in prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what it is saying to the churches. 
Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. That is the death that John will go on to talk about after the resurrection of all people to face the judgment seat of Christ. Now, what's interesting about this? You say, that's not very encouraging. He's telling everyone they're about to suffer (laughs) for at least 10 days, which in symbolic language of an apocalyptic text, who knows how long that will be? At least 10 days. And he's saying, listen, you might feel like you're poor, you might feel like your life is all suffering, but you're actually rich. Now, just think about that for a second. Think about if that's the message that you like to be encouraged with when you come to church. The reason why you don't ever hear that message or you don't like to hear that message is because you're a rich American. And you're in the top 1% of the richest people that have ever walked God's good green earth. Imagine hearing this message in another nation, at another time. By the way, the past kind of sucked. It was not easy. Suffering was all around. And the message of Jesus Christ meets the poor and the downcast, those who are suffering or even thrown in jail or even killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And it says, you are rich. Today is actually International uh, Persecuted Church Day. Around the world, people are celebrating the persecuted church because for many, this doesn't read like a back then, that this reads as a right now. And the message is the same. You are rich. What is John talking about? You are rich because of heaven. And so if we refuse to talk about heaven because we don't want to seem like we're escaping the present, then we are refusing to use one of the most important things God God gives to us and gives our brothers and sisters around the world to make it through challenging times. So we must. We must speak the words of heaven to each other, to our friends, to our family, we must speak. So what's the rest of the picture that that God paints for us about heaven in the book of Revelation? Well, there's a lot. There's 22 chapters. I'm not going to go through all of it, but I would like to read to you a few passages because, again, I hope it brings you blessing. And to be honest, as I was thinking about it, I realized maybe many of you have never heard these words. Maybe many of you don't know what the Bible says will come at the end, what God has planned for you, why we speak about the riches of heaven. So let me read to you a few passages, starting in chapter 19, verses 10 through 14. Chapter 19, verses 10, excuse me, 11, I believe, through 14. Okay. Then I saw heaven opened, 
and a white horse was standing there. The rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. The, his eyes were flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. Guess who that is? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. That's Jesus of Nazareth. The same John penned that in his gospel, and he says that Jesus will come again. Now fast forward here to chapter 20, verses 4 to 5. It says this, Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue nor accepted his mark on their forehead or their hands. They all came to life again and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. Blessed are those who participate in the first resurrection. So what the Bible teaches, again... One day I'll probably teach through Revelation, but Jesus will come back. He'll set up a kingdom on earth, and it will last for a long period of time. And those who have died in faith will experience the first resurrection and get to reign with Christ for a thousand years. And then comes the second resurrection, in which all people, those who died with faith in Christ and those who did not, will be raised to new life, and they'll stand before the throne. So go forward with me to chapter 20, verse 11. John says this, and then I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. This is after the thousand years. And the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what had been done, what they had done as recorded in the books. So there's coming a judgment day. Then after that, again, I can't go through it all. But if you flip over to, to verse 21, or sorry, chapter 21, it says this, verses 1 and 2. So this is after the judgment, and then it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. It's not that there's no water. It means that the sea was often um, associated with death. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. What's happening? Heaven is invading earth. God's, Jesus' kingdom, but then there has been reigning. He has been, but there's still people uh, opposing him. And so then heaven comes and invades and will recreate heaven and earth. It will be new. Excuse me. Flip over now in chapter 21 to verse 10. So he, that's the angel, took me, that's John, in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city that had just come up as heaven invaded earth. Descending out of heaven from God, it shone with glory, the glory of God, and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. The city wall was broad and high. Skip down. To verse 16, when he measured it, he found that it was, a, it was like a square, as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them. They were about 216 feet thick. 
Jump over here to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb were its temple. And the city had no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city. And the Lamb is its light. Jump down to verse 27. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry or dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. One on each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with fresh crop each month. Then the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be curse upon anything, for the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. There will be no night there, no need of a lamp or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. Again, I just want to make sure you know about this. I just want to make sure you know and can look forward to this coming day. So if you want to build up, don't do it with one hand tied behind your back. Don't refuse to only build with the things of now. Let both hands work to build for the now and for the future. To speak of the now and to speak of the future. Think about heaven. Set your mind on the things that are above. Let your head get into the clouds once in a while. Daydream about this eternal reality. And then you come back with your feet firmly planted and you work for the now. Talk about heaven. Talk about it with your Christian brothers and sisters, with those who are not yet Christian. If you don't talk about it, how will people know that this isn't as good as it gets? Maybe you could use Jesus' principle, the 10% rule. If he talked about it 10% of the time, maybe you should talk about heaven at least 10% of the time. Which is what? Which means 90% of the time you're talking about, what do I got to do right now? How do I live right now? How do I take care of people right now? How do I serve people right now? How do I take care of the poor and the widows right now? But at least 10% of the time say, but one day there will be no poor. One day there will be no widows. I, I thought about this 10 to 90 ratio. I thought, well, that's very similar to what the church talks about when it talks about giving a tithe or a tenth of your income to the work of God in the world, which is what? to things other than, than your own personal survival. Now, you're still giving 90% to that stuff. you got to pay rent. you got to eat. <laughs> you got to take care of your family. But to give away 10% of it is to say, I know that this life isn't my only life. Give away 10% of your words. If you have 10 conversations with somebody and nine of them are political, make sure the 10th is about heaven about the King of kings and the Lord of lords, about his glory and his rule and what his kingdom looks like. Just make sure. Say, so like, I don't only talk about the here and the now because I know there's something else coming. Longing in this life for something greater is a signpost that points to heaven. C.S. Lewis said it the best. He often talked about longing and he said, everything that we long for has some way to be satisfied. If you're hungry, then you can be satisfied by eating. 
If you're thirsty, you can be satisfied by drinking. If you're lonely, you can be satisfied by good company. But if there are things that you long for in this life that have never been satisfied and it doesn't seem will be satisfied, what should that tell you? Perhaps there's a reality to come. A reality that only in that time and place and space can those things be satisfied. C.S. Lewis thought that place was heaven and he said every heart longs for things that cannot be satisfied in this world. So longing is good. Longing for heaven is right. But guess what? That longing is not going to go away in the next four years. No matter who's president. No matter who's mayor. No matter who's governor. That longing will still be here. There will be those things that just don't go away. In fact, I was, listening, I was watching Saturday Night Live last night. John Mulaney was hosting and he was giving his opening monologue. And he was saying the exact same thing. He's saying, listen, no matter who wins this election, some things will not change. And he was talking about, you know, teenage girls will still have sleepovers. And, and one, of those, one of the girls that gets invited, if there's five invited, uh, the mom made the gal hosting invite that girl. And she came and it got weird and awkward and they had to call the girl's parents and then the dad had to sit in his pajamas at the kitchen table waiting for that girl's mom to come and he had to apologize for his daughter for being mean to this girl and trying to blame it on his wife <laughs> and all these things that will still happen there are longings that will not go away this world will still be broken and it begs us to long for heaven where only some things can be righted. Some things will never be righted in this life, in this world as it is. So we long for that place, that time, where every tear will be wiped away by Christ Jesus our King when he comes. So how do we get there? How do we get to this heaven? I want to read one more thing from you from Revelation I read this at a memorial service that I officiated in which a dear family friend, a man who had given his life to the word of God and who had given his career to being a CPA and opening books and accounting for things, and I shared this passage. I read it to you earlier. I'm going to read it again. Revelation 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it, and the earth and the sky fled from his presence because he is so much bigger than the earth and the sky. They found no place to hide, though. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And I said in this memorial, and I'll say it again to you here, Notice that there's multiple books. If you read on, some of those books record everything that you've ever done. And if you just have those books open on your account, you will always come up wanting. You will always come up short. You will never come up balanced next to the glory and righteousness of God. But there's another book, he says, the book of life here. And if your name is written in that book, the promise is, is that you will enter this heavenly reality, this kingdom of God, and the great high priest, the heavenly accountant, all it takes to get into that second book, the book of life, is that you've walked into his office and that you've done business with him. 
doesn't matter how much good that you've done. What matters is that he knows you because he alone is the one who has paid the price already to cancel your debt. He's the one alone who has the power to make you right with the Father. And his name is Jesus. At the very end of Revelation, in the very, near the very, the very last part of the last chapter, we see these words. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let everyone who hears this say, Come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires to drink freely from the water of life, come. This is the greatest truth about heaven. Anyone who wants to come can come. They just have to do business with King Jesus, accept his free gift of grace, his sacrifice on the cross, his accounting for your life, his writing your name in the book of life. You must bend your knee and accept that gift. And the Spirit says, come.